This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. This week, I chat with Packy McCormick, founder and creator of the Not Boring Newsletter and the Not Boring Syndicate. I'm a huge fan of Packy's writing and he's quickly becoming one of my favorite reads on the internet. Our wide-ranging conversation dives deep into Packy's writing and research process, how Packy creates new frameworks from old ideas, lessons learned from David Perel's writing course, emerging markets, and his pitch on FEMSA. We end the conversation with Packy's plans for the future of Not Boring, and we find out which president Packy would rather shoot hoops with. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I know you will too. Thanks. All right, Packy McCormick, live, virtually, in the flesh, sort of. It's been awesome to see your growth in the newsletter business and your Twitter following and just kind of what you're doing for the investing tech community. I think it's awesome. But what I don't know and what a lot of people probably don't know as well is your background. So what were you doing before you started Not Boring? And how did that eventually translate into writing a free newsletter for a living? <laughs> for sure. So first of all, thanks so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Um, so yeah, before I became a free newsletter writer, um, uh, out of school, I studied uh, economics at Duke and then went into finance, did the normal thing, came out in 2009. So I'd been uh, you know, on an energy trading desk, came out, Bank of America and Merrill Lynch. I had been at Bank of America. Those two merged, got kind of spit into the pool of public finance when I got to uh, to Bank of America Merrill. Fun experience, not what I had been anticipating, but you know, learned a lot and that was great. I was planning on going back to business school, like had my deposit down, ready to go. Uh, and then I stumbled on AngelList on this company called Breather, uh, which does kind of on-demand meeting and office space. Mm-hmm. They were nothing but an idea at that point, which I really liked. And they you know, didn't have a lot of the jobs that I'd seen were like, we need someone who has six years of marketing experience or five years of X. And I was like, I'm a finance guy who doesn't want to do finance. So like, I need a pretty general vague role. Uh, and so at Breather, I was able to make my role. So I, I launched uh, the New York City market for us. So I was a first US employee. I was with the company for six years, served in the office of the CEO for a little bit after our CEO left. So I got to run the yeah. company for a while. The company wow. raised over $120 million. So awesome experience. And then by the time I left was running kind of all of our real estate operations, design, construction, globally, we're in 10 markets. So really, really cool, like kind of in the weeds, hands-on experience. We had, you know, reservations that lasted like an hour uh, and we'd have to turn them over multiple times a day up to many, many months and did short-term and long-term and got to do strategy and operations and awesome, awesome hands-on experience. But six years is a very long time to be at a startup. Uh, so at the end of 2019, finally uh, left Breather. I was in the middle of working on starting something called Not Boring Club, actually, which I think was, you know, would have been a really fun idea, would not have been a great company. So the pandemic kind of saved me uh, in that sense. And I had been writing this newsletter kind of just on the side a couple hours a week for the past year. It was about 500 subscribers and decided, you know, I have time. I'm at home because of the pandemic and this business I don't think is going to do anything during the pandemic because it's in-person based. So let me just try to start writing and see what happens and fast forward eight months. And that's kind of what I'm doing full time, which is wild. 
That's crazy. What were what were some of your biggest struggles and anxieties writing publicly? I mean, we can we we can talk about, you know, now that your newsletter is larger, but even even for those initial five hundred, like was writing something that you always did in college and you were just attuned to writing, or was it kind of a grind and a hustle at first? Yeah. So I mean, I've always liked writing and I've done well in classes that had, you know, a writing component. And, you know, even in high school, I'd write papers that would be on some topic in history, but then I'd add like a funny twist or something where I got the facts right. And then kind of, you know, gave my teacher something that made them laugh a little bit. So I think that that helped and, and that's carried over, but I'd never really written publicly before. I probably wrote two medium posts that I then deleted because they just were terrible. <laughs> uh, and so I took last year uh, in, in April, I took David Burrell's uh, rite of passage course. Um, and as part of that, how to start a newsletter. And so like, the most terrifying moment I think of the whole the whole writing process was that first time when I sent it to like 25 friends and family because I was like, why do these people care what I have to say? Like I'm gonna mm -hmm. send some links and listens. I think I had a, a, a link to an article on the Game of Thrones finale and like just like a totally random thing. And I was like, nobody's gonna care. And like yeah. really thought that um, you know even worse than not caring, they were gonna make fun of me for it. And like it, behind my back, they're gonna be like, what is Packy? doing? Like, doesn't he have a job? What's going on here? So that was certainly, I think, the hardest part mentally of the whole process. And that persisted for a while. Now I definitely feel it, but in a different, a different way. I think now, uh, you know, I, I wrote about it actually in the newsletter today. Like I wrote about APIs today and it's a topic that like one is both so familiar and like well covered among a certain type of person that it feels silly to write about it. And then also I don't have the depth to really write about it in any meaningful way. So I really felt like an yep. imposter sending that out. Hmm. But that at least feels like, you know, people know that I'm now like kind of experimenting. I'm just gonna like try stuff. And so it's not quite as embarrassing as it would have been, you know, a while a while back. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. Actually, you 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 brought it up and it was gonna be the question I was gonna ask you next is how do you cope with this idea of imposter syndrome? So I view it from two lenses and and maybe maybe you do as well like from one end from 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 one lens there's this investor imposter syndrome right where you have a good call and you're sitting there thinking like well did I really do the work to necessitate that good outcome or was it just luck and I think the same thing goes with writing like last month I spent all month writing about artificial intelligence deep learning and these competitive advantages I'm sitting here like look I don't have a PhD I didn't you know I didn't I didn't graduate in engineering there's so many people that are quote unquote you know way smarter than me writing about this you know why should I even take the time um how do you cope with imposter syndrome and then just kind of keep going yeah so I think those are two yeah two different types of imposter syndrome for sure on the investor side I mean like I don't keep a decision journal, but because I'm writing this newsletter publicly, like I have my thinking behind yeah. why a company may or may not move kind of written out there. So there's a company like Compass Pathways, which I wrote about, which is a- Great call, by the way. <laughs> great call, by the way. <laughs> Psilocybin-based uh, mental health treatment that nothing material has changed since I wrote about the company and it's up 55%. And so like that one- just feels like we're in a crazy market and it's pure luck. Then there's one like Spotify where I was like, look, there's this whole narrative around the company that that says this company has structurally bad margins because of their deals with the record labels. And, you know, like they have declining revenue per user and they're losing money and all these things. And on that one, I said like, look, they're going to start making some announcements around podcasting. And when they do, the narrative is going to change. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, they made the Joe Rogan announcement. And since then yeah. the stock is up like 150%. Yeah. So that one I feel better on because it was like, I think this thing will happen and when it does, it'll go up. And so when that happens, I feel good. 
other times it just feels like total luck. And so that's on the, that's on the investing side. And I also do have this investor imposter syndrome where like, you know, I worked in finance, but in public finance. So it's not like I came from a hedge fund and like yeah. really know what I'm doing on the investing side. Um, on the writing side, I think, and this is like a more, a broader point on writing, but it's really about kind of like being unique and finding kind of the intersection of a few different things. So if I'm not an expert in investing and I'm not an expert in tech and I'm not a full expert in business strategy and I'm all these like things that I know about, but I'm not an expert in. If you combine those things, then like maybe I'm a bit more of an expert at like being comfortable with a bunch of those different mm -hmm. things that and the, their intersections. Yeah. And so like, if I were to try to write like the canonical piece on the like technical infrastructure of a banking API, like, of course that wouldn't make any sense. But if I combine like kind of some hypothesizing and some business strategy and APIs and video games and like a bunch, then like at least nobody's written that thing before. So like maybe it's totally wrong, but at least it's like a new and kind of interesting take mm -hmm. on something that other people have, have written about. So that's how I handle it on that side. But certainly like every week I feel like you know, because I don't have a particular area of focus, I'm diving in on something that other people have spent years or decades of their lives doing. Right. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know what? I just studied for the past couple of days. It's kind of cool is like the metaverse. And, yeah, and then and Matthew and then, Ball's over here, like slaving away with his life on the metaverse. Exactly. But I mean, like that is the beautiful, beautiful part of the internet. And I think it prevents mm -hmm. you from making too big a fool of yourself yeah. is that I can read Matthew Ball and I can listen to other people and I can watch Tim Sweeney, the Epic CEO talk. And so like at a certain point, you can kind of accumulate like at least an understanding of what people in the space are talking about and find interesting at any given moment between what they've written, what they've spoken about publicly, and then what they're talking about on Twitter so that you're not at least having the conversation that's like seven years old and that you have to right. assume that people who are reading Matthew Ball are like kind of geeky about media and video games and all of that. And so like, mm -hmm. if you can bring it to a slightly more general audience then like maybe there is something there. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of it has to do with this idea of time frame because writing a once a week piece, you almost kid yourself and saying like, there's no way I can learn enough about X in, you know, the six days I have from the last post that I wrote, but it's really not about that, but it's also the technology and the internet has shrunk in the time that we need to get at least that minimum dose of effort to know enough to then make those node connections. Like you said, where maybe you're not the best at AI, maybe you're not the best at FEMSA or reliance, but you're the one of the best at relating reliance to gamification, game theory, psychology, and all that stuff. And then you create your own little pool there. Exactly right. So you have these frameworks that you can fall back on that you can plug each new kind of thing that you discover into. So like talking about, you know, value chains today when it, it, as they relate to APIs and like, that's a slightly different take. And so, you know, maybe like one person and I cited that person has written about that and expanded on that, but it's like, you know, there's, there's those intersections that I think are helpful. I think actually the real imposter syndrome for me sets in like months after I write something and someone will be like, oh, I'm so interested in like topic X that you wrote about. Like, let's talk about topic X. And I'm like, shoot, I <laughs> have totally forgotten what I wrote about on topic X because my memory is terrible and I've written, you know, 50,000 words in the interim. So like, let me, let me like reread that before we have that conversation. I always get that too when I write ideas because I try to pitch at least one idea to like our collective membership. And I try to do, you know, at least one or two ideas a month just to the website that I have. And I'll have 
people that reach out to me like, Hey, you know, any follow-up on this company? And it's a company I wrote about six months ago. And I found it interesting that one time, but then I put it on the back burner because everything else got interesting. I'm like, Nope, sorry. I haven't kept up with the 60 different companies I've written about in the last <laughs> six months. <laughs> right. I, I would love to do that though. I, I think like that would be a really fascinating and it can't just be me. Like if I were to, you know, expand the not boring team from the one person that it is right now to a broader group of people. I think part of it would be that, like where there's this much more like kind of serious research angle to it. And like the follow-up then and tracking of like, was this right? Was this wrong? Why was this right? Why was this wrong? Uh, and like kind of the categorization and follow-up that I can't do now just because of time that I think would be really cool to do. In that vein, how do you structure your schedule on research and writing? That's one of the biggest things that I struggle with and I'm interested to get your take. Yeah. So somebody today on Twitter was like, I'd love to take a masterclass on your, on your research <laughs> process. And I like literally have no research process or scheduling or what I like Sunday afternoon. So we're recording on a Monday. Yeah. Yesterday was Sunday. In middle of the day, I was talking to my wife and I was like, I know I'm writing about APIs, but like, I don't know exactly what I'm writing about yet. And so I've done like a bunch of this research and I'll try to figure out like kind of what the angle is, but on a good week, by, you know, call it Wednesday, I'll have figured out the topic that I'm going to be writing about on Monday. And then I just dive in and I read as much as humanly possible. I take notes in Rome because I, that's like what you're supposed to do, I guess. And like, maybe at some point in the future, there will be a magical time when like all of my cross links start coming together and forming some mind. I don't know. I, it, I use it as like a blank note taking yeah. up. I do that. Uh, I listen to podcasts with kind of like the founders or the leaders of the company or people talking about the company. And that's more of like, you know, I'm not sitting there taking notes because I'll drive around and listen or walk around and listen or run and listen, mm -hmm. but it'll like, it'll spark different kind of rabbit holes to go down on the topic. And so it's like really about a few days of immersion. And then I always pretend to start an outline. Like I have two docs when I start writing any given time, I have my outline and link stock. And then I have, which is separate from the Rome. It's a mess. Uh, and then I have like the kind of blank page. This is going to be where I write the uh, kind of doc. Yeah. I always start with an outline and then I'm like, ah, you know what, let me go start writing and see what happens. And so it's typically like immerse myself, start writing. And then as I'm writing, figure out like where I need to dive deeper, where I need to find new source materials uh, and, and go from there and then just kind of write. And then luckily my brother and my wife have not tired yet of reading and editing the, the pieces. So that's kind of the like Saturday night or Sunday thing. Got it. And what, what did you learn from David Peril's course that was kind of the most impactful for you? I mean, what the, the, the most important thing, and I think this is probably true for most writing courses is just the consistency of showing up every week, having done something. So it was, mm -hmm. you know, probably 50 or so it was an early cohort, 50 or so people in the class. And then you break down into like three to five person groups during the session to critique each other's writing. And so like, if, if you're the, the guy who didn't do your writing, then you just kind of sit there. And so what I really got out of it was that accountability of every week I need to show up having written something, whether it's good, not good, whatever. So that's number one is just kind of keep showing up and doing the thing. The other is that kind of the intersections point, which he calls the personal monopoly, but where it's like, take like the five things that you're interested in, find their intersection. And then like, that's the thing that you can become the expert in it wasn't about sentence structure or like grammar or anything like that. Um, it was really about like figuring out the right thing to write about, figuring out what interests people. And so like, that's another actually trick when I have my brother or my wife read like an early draft, I'll be like, 
cool. What did you find like the most interesting here? And then I'll dive in deeper on the thing that they found most interesting. And like, what did you find the most boring or like, where did this just like totally drag for you? And then I'll cut a lot of that section down. Yeah. So it's really like less about the, the technical writing and more about just figuring out what's interesting to people. Got it. Now, how do you source these ideas? What that's, that's kind of the other big chunk. You've got the writing, the research, and then the actual sourcing of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had a better answer for this. Like, cause it really like, you know, last weekend it was 4.30 PM on a Friday and I had no idea what I was going to write about. Um, and <laughs> this week I knew that I was writing about APIs as of Thursday, but okay. I didn't quite get the angle. So the way that this one came about was I read Ben Thompson's piece on Stripe and Shopify and, and Stripe's kind of platform of platforms. He called it them launching treasury, which allows their, their platform partners to launch a banking product for their customers. And so I was like, that's really cool. Cause when I wrote about Stripe before the biggest knock that people had on Stripe or one of the biggest knocks was Shopify is just going to go build their own thing. They'll rip out the Stripe API. They'll stop paying Stripe the fees and like, they'll do it on their own. Yeah. And instead of that happening, they went the opposite way and they went deeper with Stripe and you know, you could rip out a payments API fairly easily. It's going to be really hard to rip out your customers' bank accounts once they have their money sitting there. So like, this is kind of a commitment to that partnership. And 100%. so it like, kind of had me dive in and think like, what what's there that makes them want to stick with somebody even though they have to pay these transaction fees? And that led me down the rabbit hole of like the API business model and why sitting on top of like all of this deep complexity, both technical, but then like regulatory and banking partnership related and all of these other things. And then delivering that to people in a few lines of code, like mm -hmm. what's special there? And then I would read from there and be like, oh, cool, this guy wrote something interesting about how the value chain changes. And then I talked to a smart friend about how he thought the value chain might change in an API first world. And then just kind of like went from there, but it really started by, I think just being pretty online and reading a bunch of stuff and then figuring out what strikes my fancy. It's amazing. And this isn't even related to what you just said. It's just my scatterbrain, my, my scatterbrain going, but it's amazing how much better of a writer you can, you can become if you learn how to just take like a quote from someone else and synthesize it in your own words. Like you can write pages and pages of content if you're able to just be like, zoop, kind of codify it in like, you know, pull this text, insert yours, pull this text, insert yours. Like, I think, I think that's how you end up producing, you know, the content and the length that you do because you, because you do such a good job of parsing all this, you know, disparate information from other people and then putting it into words that other people can understand. Totally. I, I think that's a big thing. I, that was actually then another thing from the rite of passage course was the first kind of public writing assignment that we had to do was take someone that you, whose work you really respect and synthesize it and like kind of add your own twist and add your own personal story to it. But there's so much good stuff out there already that like part of the value that you can add as a starting out writer is just taking stuff that other people have written and synthesizing kind of like what makes that good and, and what the insights are that you can glean from. And I chose Ben Thompson very in a very cliche way, chose Ben Thompson and like picked my, you know, 10 favorite things that he's written and how they related to decisions that I was making at work and all hmm. of that. And so I, I really think like, there's definitely something to that, particularly if you're getting started, just like go out and figure out who you like and then synthesize their work. And at least by getting really familiar with a good writer's work, you'll understand kind of like what makes them tick and where you can differentiate. Yeah. And speaking of other people's work and liking other people's work, let's dive in now to your collaboration piece on FEMSA with Postmarket. And Postmarket is the one anonymous Twitter account that I really wanted on the podcast and haven't got there yet. Fingers crossed, Christmas 
you know, Christmas wish coming up, but what was it like working with post-market and walk us through kind of the, you know, the elevator pitch on FEMSA? Yeah, for sure. It was awesome. And like, it's one of those things that like, I just sat back and I was like, Twitter is such a wild place. So I, a few months ago had tweeted out asking for like the most, you know, interesting under the radar bonus points of its international companies and post-market replied and said, FEMSA. And so I DM'd and said, or like actually in the thread said like, let's write this together and post-market DM me and, and said like, you know, maybe, maybe in a couple months. And so finally, a couple months later, uh, FEMSA had unfortunately gone up a little bit since then, but a couple months later reached back out and we decided to write the piece together. And it was so cool because, and I think it comes through in the piece, it's just like very much like more legit finance focused than I would normally write. Like my stuff mm-hmm. is generally like kind of like broad and conceptual and then I'll throw the numbers in there, but like, yeah. it's not like somebody who works every day in finance doing an analysis on a company, whereas mm-hmm. this felt like kind of a hybrid between what I would normally write and what somebody at a fund would write as an investment memo. Right. And so I thought that part was really fun and just kind of gave me a new way of thinking that I'll now carry into any other kind of investment style pieces that I, that I do. The, Elevator pitch on FEMSA is that FEMSA is a 130-year-old company that started as a brewery that five families started in Monterey, Mexico in 1890, and has kind of evolved over the course of its life to do a bunch of different things. First, it kind of vertically integrated everything that you'd want to do, so it made its own bottle caps, and then it made its own steel plant to make the bottle caps, and it made packaging and labeling, whatever, spit off a bunch of cash, uh, ended up getting the rights to uh, the Coca-Cola bottling contract in Mexico City. Uh, So it had that. Then it launched the OXO convenience stores, which are ubiquitous in Mexico now. And so what FEMSA is saying, like a bunch of things have happened over time, but what FEMSA is today essentially is a 15% stake in Heineken, which it exchanged all of its breweries for. Mm -hmm. Um, half ownership of that Coca-Cola bottling plan. I think it owns like 47.2% of that. And then most importantly, the the network of 20,000 or so OXO convenience stores, which convenience stores are more fascinating than I realized generally. And and Postmarket was not the first person that I talked to who who loves these stores. I had spoken to somebody else recently who loves Couchetard because the transaction sizes are small, they're convenient, they're right next to your home, they're everywhere you are. And like they do this, they, they fulfill this need that something like an Amazon can't just come in and do. Like Amazon doesn't want to deliver you a $1 candy bar. You want to go get that at the convenience store. Yeah. It builds this habit. You go into the convenience store every day. And what that means here, it's, you know, 7-Eleven is an interesting company in its own right. What it means in Mexico, where 60% of the people are unbanked and don't have a credit card, is that FEMSA is where they go to do everything, right? So like, right. if you want to buy a Netflix subscription and you don't have a credit card, you go into FEMSA, you pay cash, you scan a QR code, and then you have your Netflix subscription. Or if you want V-Bucks in Fortnite, you have to go to the FEMSA to do That's that. Crazy. So it's like really like the physical <laughs> manifestation of the Mexican internet. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the, the kind of bulk, the, the kind of normal investment pitch on FEMSA is it has this conglomerate discount and it's undervalued because it has all these different things and it should probably spin off its Heineken steak and maybe the bottling steak and focus on OXO and, and maybe it should spin off OXO and its own thing. And so like, there's all this value to unlock and, oh, by the way, like it'll recover from pandemic and blah, 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 blah. The, the major bull case is that it becomes kind of like the digital wallet for Mexico. Right. Um, 
And that like, because people are going in there every day, then it can provide the digital wallet instead of people having to just go into the store and pay cash. And then it really is kind of like the on-ramp to the internet in Mexico. Yeah. And reading that, I think you said that it was basically, at least at the price at the time, I haven't checked the charts, but at the price at the time that was, you were basically getting that call option, the digital wallet for free. Is that correct? That's that's the thesis is you're getting this this digital wallet option for free and like you're even probably getting paid for it just given the, the the conglomerate discount. Yeah. Now, when you look at Mexico and Latin America in particular, these emerging markets, um, we're we're starting to look at it at Macrops, and it's just super exciting to think about like the digital penetration rates that are going to happen over the next five to ten years, and then what that means for business. Were there any other companies? When you were researching FEMSA, maybe maybe they were ancillary, maybe they were you know in different in different verticals, different industries. Were there any other companies that you were like, wow, I want to go back and I want to write about this one, or wow, this one's super interesting? Not in Mexico in particular. I think in Latin America, like obviously Mercado Libre is is interesting, yeah. and I think fairly well covered. Rappi is interesting, and it's actually I think selling shares on Forge Global now, so it's not public, but it is actually accessible if you have a hundred thousand that you want to plop into into Rappi. But I think. To me, actually, the most interesting thing about emerging markets is the number of opportunities, and, and certainly there are many, but it's the fact that if you're first to provide kind of some sort of critical digital infrastructure in the company, it really puts you in this like pretty sweet monopoly position. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, obviously China is the model there and it's a duopoly, but to do anything as a foreigner in China, you kind of have to work with Tencent or Alibaba. If you want to spread your app digitally in China, you kind of have to work with Tencent because you know WeChat is the distribution method. So they have the ability to see what's taking off, they can invest in it, and then they can kind of pour fuel on that fire. I think Reliance in India is a similar situation where you know, they've built the infrastructure for the internet in India. They, they built out the 4G network there. They're going to build out the 5G network. They're building services on top of it. And so they've attracted like 30 plus billion dollars of foreign investment in their geo platforms and, and retail products because foreign companies need to work with them to be able to work in India. Right. I Strategically, I think there's some differences between what they're doing and how I would do it. They run a multi-billion dollar company and I don't. So <laughs> who's to say who's to say who's right here? But- yeah. I mean, they're in this position where they have the choice to like figure out kind of how they take advantage of that position. And I think, you know, what attracts me to FEMSA is that they could be in that same spot in Mexico. And so I think the lack of infrastructure from other companies and from even the government itself, the lack of, you know, like the, the leapfrogging to mobile and like all those things just present opportunities for somebody to come in and just take that spot in the middle. And so while there's a bunch of interesting opportunities around that, it's really interesting if you can find the companies, that, the, the company that's in the middle and owns the infrastructure in those, in those markets. Yeah. Well, talk to us about this idea of leapfrogging to mobile and then maybe, maybe in tandem leapfrogging with new technology. So one of the big bull cases with emerging markets and frontier markets like you know Africa we can we can even go into sub-saharan Africa for this example is the idea that all of these new frameworks all of these new institutions they're going to be built on technology that was way better than when developed nations like the US and you know some 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 parts of the UK and Europe when those institutions were built so do you think that is overestimated or kind of underestimated the importance of this idea of leapfrogging and then these frameworks being built on higher technology uh, rails, so to speak? I mean, I think the market matters more than anything. So to the extent okay. that the new technology brings the market 
up to speed and digital yeah. adoption happens and penetration happens and mobile's frankly just easier than putting, you know, a compact desktop computer with a modem, like a 20, you know, 28 mod whatever modem in into your home. Like that's just going to be a slower adoption curve than if everybody can just get access to a cheap cell phone and then they can do more things on that cell phone. So I think it's just yeah. like the speed of adoption and where you're starting from. Like if you had asked me if you like eliminated Amazon and Google and Apple and everybody and said, all right, like Africa is leapfrogging and starting on mobile or America has all this infrastructure and no big companies, like where do you want to invest? I would invest in the US, but it's just like, because those companies, those countries are a little bit further behind, there's just more opportunity for growth. And I think like just the, you know, mobile technology is enabling people to to get online faster and to spend more money online faster. And so I think you're buying growth more than like, wow, Africa is going to be multiples bigger than the US because they've, you know, leapfrogged worse technology. Yeah. And that's something that I always have to check myself in because it's so easy to get just hooked on this idea that like, oh, the frontier is being built on higher technology. And it's so easy just to kind of bypass the real risks involved in those areas just to say, oh, well, everything's being built on 5G. Everything else is being built on digital. Like India, for example, it's like, oh, everything's going to be digital first. And then yep. you really askew these actual real risks involved in these investments. But if you look at like India is, I think, a phenomenal example because you know, one of the things that Reliance is doing, so Reliance is now the biggest retailer. You know, they started as, yeah. they, they owned import licenses and then they backward integrated also. And now today with under Mukesh Ambani, who's the son of the founder, mm -hmm. he's like really launched two new initiatives. One is Reliance Retail in 2006, which is now the biggest retailer in the country yeah. and Geo, which is the 4G infrastructure of the country. And then he has Geo Mart, which kind of combines retail uh, and Geo into essentially it's like the DoorDash meets like, kind of local Amazon delivery meets a few other things in India, but that builds on top of their like local Kirana network, which are these like little lean to family run, like one or two person, like to call them a store is- Like a bodega is, almost. It's like a bodega on whatever, like the opposite of crack is, right? Like it's a, <laughs> it's a smaller version of the bodega that you'd run into in, in New York city. Yeah. And so like, you know, they need to figure out how to, so if you're talking like, awesome that they're on 5g and that's amazing but they're building on top of this infrastructure of these like lean to stores all around all around the country and so it's not just like you know you're picturing something like from tron or something is this like future it's not that it's that you're building yeah. you know you're giving all these people access to technology to build on top of kind of like the the infrastructure that they have already my sister actually runs a fintech in in ghana in west africa oh no and way so, yeah and so like one of the the arguments there is you know, like that there's this incredible mobile adoption and all, and those things are a hundred percent true. The downside of that is that like her growth in the beginning is so much slower than it would be here. Cause you're not just saying like, Hey, use this new app or use this new FinTech app. Or it's like, here's what an app is. And like, here's how yeah. you use an app. And like, you can actually send money on it. And here's like something that we had to build into the UX such that you trust that we're not just going to run away with your money mm. because you've never via phone before. So it's like, it's not just like people get a phone and they're like, oh, this makes sense. I'm going to do FinTech stuff on here. It's like, you need to educate <laughs> the market and bring it up to speed. But the flip side of that is because it's been unbanked and unpenetrated and all of that, if you can do that and you're in a really fast growing market and the demographics look really good and all of hmm. those things, then you're in this really amazing position to capture a lot of the value as that market matures. Yeah, that's so funny. That's pretty much the same pitch that my friends give me when they want me to play Rocket League on xbox they're like look man the learning curve is insane but once you get it 
it's one of the funnest games you'll ever play. <laughs> totally. And there, I mean, like that's, you know, that's a thing in maybe, maybe this is my sister getting tricked by like some meta game design, but like that's a thing in game design as well. That like, they want you to feel like there's a bit of a struggle and that you're like accomplishing something and learning something and overcoming some challenges. Cause then once you get to the other side, then it's like this thing that you've earned. We talked about Rome. Like that's one of the things that people say is so great about Rome is that there's this massive learning curve, but then like, once you get it, you're in this anointed group of people who understands how to use, how to use Rome. But I think it really is more that just like, you have to be willing to make that schlep in the beginning. And it looks sexy at the end when everybody's sending money to each other on their phones and you've turned yeah. a market that was all pen and paper into a market that's fully digital and expanded the market and all of that. But that is like a decade of schlep to get there. I tell you what, I feel like there's a business model and I'm definitely not the first person to say this at all, but I feel like there's a business model where you can outsource the documentation and the like education of your own product to the masses that, that, that you kind of send it to. Um, but before, before we kind of go a little bit further, what is the company, uh, that your, that your sister runs in Ghana and what is, what does it do? I'm interested. Yeah, it's called Oze. Um, and Oze means to dare. She ran a, she was in the Peace Corps uh, and ran a nonprofit called Oze Innovate, which means dare to innovate, and then spun off the, the for-profit called Oze. What Oze does is it replaces the pen and paper ledger with a mobile app. And so there's all of these small kind of Corona-like businesses around the country that right now use pencil and paper to record their transactions, which like kind of first order problem is one that's a pain in the ass. Second is you're not going to be able to glean any insights from your business. It's just like, right. I've recorded it, it's there. And then I fill that book up and then it goes on the shelf and I never look at it ever again. So you're not going to learn and be able to improve your business. Most importantly though, what it means is that you can't get access to credit. And so like mm -hmm. there is just incredibly, incredibly low access to credit in Western Africa. And so what they're doing is using kind of mobile accounting software as a wedge into being able to establish credit profiles and facilitate lending and facilitate better business decisions. And so like now they're already, you know, they're a couple of years in and now they're already starting to work with some of the biggest banks in Africa to give loans to all these businesses. Cause obviously like particularly in markets where you're going to get some yield, if you're lending to a small business in, in Ghana, there's cash just waiting there looking for places to, to lend. But if there's mm -hmm. no credit history and no credit profile on these customers, then there's nothing you can do with it. And so yeah. it unlocks for the, the lending side, it unlocks this huge pool of demand. And for these people, it means that all of a sudden you can invest in your business and grow your business. And oh, by the way, you have all this data now, so you can do that intelligently as you're, as you're yeah. growing. That's awesome. And you said it's what Oze is the name? Oze, O-Z-E dot guru is the website. But it's like, if you're familiar with Katabuk in India, it's it's a lot like Katabuk is in India, but for the African market. Awesome. Yeah, I've actually, I actually messaged somebody on Twitter uh, to see if I can get him on the podcast. He basically does tech investing in Africa, like Nigeria related stuff. And so... Yeah. That's going to be exciting because that's just such an exciting space. But I do it's want a to wild world. Wait, there's just one. Yeah. There's one story. No, go ahead. <laughs> she was telling me. So I was asking her about Jumia because I feel like an idiot. I was going to write about Jumia like six weeks ago. I was texting is that somebody JMIA, about it. JMIA, the ticker. JMIA. Yeah. It it tanked when Citron Research essentially said like there's a bunch of fraud going on here. Yep. I and then that. it recovered when Citron came back out and was like you'd have to have your eyes closed to think that this isn't going to be a multiple hundred billion dollar opportunity <laughs> and blah, 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 blah. So like yeah. Citron really kind of tanked it and then brought it back to life before mm -hmm. they released that report. I wanted to, to, to write about it because you know, my sister's in the market, whatever. And I was asking my sister about it the other day and she's like, yeah, no, the company's doing well. It's really the only option there. One interesting thing about the company <laughs> is that, and this goes back to the education problem. 
is that a lot of people think that you're getting, like there's rumors going around that you get the product delivered in the actual size that you see it on the website. And so like, if you're delivering, if you're like ordering a computer monitor and you see a little picture, you think that you're getting a little picture size computer monitor. So there's no banana so like, for scale over there. Right, there's no banana for scale or anything like that. So like that, that just, I think speaks to one, the opportunity when you figure all that out and when the market catches up, but two, yeah. the, like the real challenge in educating people and how e-commerce works when you haven't interacted with e-commerce before. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's so, I mean, it's, it's, it's just going to be so exciting to see, to see what happens over the next five to 10 years there. But the question, question I wanted to ask, and it's always something I ask investors and writers in particular is this idea of knowing when enough is enough before publishing an idea. So it's, you know, once again, it goes back to this, to this thought where you have to have enough information to be able to have an opinion, but too much information, you creep into the law of diminishing returns where totally. you know, it actually doesn't work. And we can always go about that horse jockey betting where they receive 40 bits of information and they do worse, whether it receive 10 bits, they do fine. So how do yeah. you personally judge that when enough is enough when you're doing these massive deep dives? If, you know, if that's even possible to kind of quantify. Yeah, I don't think it's quantifiable. I think it's more... You know, I've written about this idea of kind of narrative investing before, and like that's really how I like to invest. Where there's no way I have any sort of quantitative edge, and so like I'm not going to be up late running models and trying to figure out if this investment makes sense. It's really like, you know, what is what do I think the narrative is that the market is telling, and then like do I think there's a crack in that narrative, or do I think they're missing something, or like is there something in the offing that maybe they don't see that would change that narrative, or all of that. And so to me, it's really about building the story. So I, I like, mm. I, it's kind of gut backed up. Um, yeah. and then if somewhere in the process, like, you know, there've been a few times when early in the week I go in and I, I want to write a bull case on a company and then I start listening to podcasts and I start reading reports and reading other people's writing on it. And I'm like, eh, actually, I'm not like, this actually breaks what I thought about the company. So I'm not going to write about it. Yep. Um, but otherwise it's really about like, here's what I believe. I've, I've found enough evidence that makes it look like I'm not totally crazy here. Yep. And so I'll write the narrative there. And when I think the narrative, like the story is in a good place and that's when I'll hit send. But again, like I'm not out there, like, you know, buying satellite images of a Walmart <laughs> parking lot. Like I'm just not going to win there. So it's really like, do I think there's a story here? All of, like the huge caveat on this. And I'm really interested to see what happens in a bear market is that like being the most optimistic guy in a room in a market like we've been in for the past decade. And then it particularly for the past eight months is like a really great thing to be when everything just goes up. And, you know, the smartest thing you could have possibly done was in mid March buy a bunch of, you know, Jan 21 calls on everything in tech, literally, right? like, everything. <laughs> literally everything. And so it's, it's easy to seem like this is the imposter syndrome thing again, but like, it's easy to seem smart when, you're really optimistic naturally and everything is just going up and like, yep. yeah, I tell a story and then like the stock goes up, like, of course, <laughs> everything went up. So it'll be really interesting to see how all of this holds in a bear market. And even if there's interest for this kind of stuff in, in a bear market. It's, it's, it's so funny gauging the level of, of FinTwit activity. And it's, I, I always have this internal struggle where it's like, is this the way that investing is changing where, you know, value investing or, you know, investing as we know it, is it changing from tangible assets, book values, cash flows matter to this more narrative shift? I'm like, is that actually happening or is this just a function of where we are in the market cycle? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's just so interesting because I'll, I'll, I'll see people, you know, tweet like, oh, you know, it's got, it's trading at, you know, 26, 28 times sales. But if you, you know, look out, for, I mean, I even did this for AI.com. 
or, or, or C3.ai. I was like, look, it's trading at 19 times sales right now, but the founders got a history of growing to 1 billion. If they get to 1 billion, you're looking at two and a half times sales. And then, and then there you go. And I'm just sitting here. I'm like, is that a function of the market we're in? Uh, God, this one's so tough. Cause it's certainly, but like, I think the, the other question is like, is this market, like, can this market persist? And yeah, I, I think like the answer is probably yes. To some extent, I think one of the things that I haven't seen written about as much, but I think is really interesting. It's just like the value in, in like pumping against companies that are now like that have broken the trillion dollar market cap barrier. Like mm-hmm. when the four minute mile was broken, it took, you know, decades and centuries and humans yeah. hadn't done it until Roger, Roger Bannister did. And then within like six months, everybody broke a four minute mile. Exactly. And then like the same thing kind of happened with a trillion dollar market cap. And what that does is like, if you're looking at a hundred billion dollar company or a $50 billion company, you can talk yourself into believing like, oh, the, the upside isn't just 10x here. The upside could be 20x because mm-hmm. Apple's at 2 trillion. And so like, I think just having like that upper bound broken is an yeah. under discussed thing that, that I think is kind of mentally valuable at least. But I think there's another piece of it too, where like there is, I think, broader access to the markets. There is more like, and not like tuning, not boring, somewhere, but there's more like people writing things like I'm writing, there's just like more kind of democratized access to all this stuff. And I wrote a piece about this, but like there's at least for like a certain class of retail investor, like just a bunch of other value that you get out of owning a stock. Like there's the social value of being in the group of Tesla bulls on Twitter talking about Tesla, or there's educational value in getting your ass kicked on a stock and going back Mm -hmm. and figuring out why. There is also just like some, you know, like, I'm so much more curious when I'm in the market than when I'm out of the market about everything, not just the companies I own, not just the market, but like what's going on in China right now. And like, you know, what's going on in global interest rates and why, and like all these things that, that just forces you to be curious about that. Like if you actually did an analysis and like unbundled everything, like there is a certain amount of money that you'd be willing to pay for continuing education. Mm -hmm. Like if you price all of those different things kind of into, into the price of a stock, then you're willing to pay a little bit more. And then there's also this piece around just like, you know, software hadn't really changed. It like it did a little bit like in, in 99, 2000, it changed markets because anybody could just pull from their brokers and go like unwatched, go trade and and make yep. stupid trades. And so like there was certainly euphoria and an effect there, but technology is like not just kind of smooth, but changed every other thing it's touched. And I can't imagine that it doesn't change the composition of the financial markets as well. So I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I do mm-hmm. think that like just new ways of interacting with kind of the companies and the stocks and all of that like does kind of change what people are willing to pay and how stocks trade and everything. Yeah. But again, sounds smart in a, in a bull market. Might look back on this and cringe. Yeah, no, I loved I loved that post about people buying stocks or companies as like a virtue signal for what they believe in. And I just think that's, I think that's so right. It's like why people buy brands. Like why do people buy MacBooks over different things? Why do people buy Yeti coolers? You know, it's, 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 it's this brand recognition. You want to be associated with something else. That's why, you know, it's, it's just, it's just so interesting on that. And then, and then the other thing I want to talk about, you mentioned the idea of, you know, breaking the four minute mile. And then after that, you know, everybody started breaking it. It makes me wonder where the standard or the average for what we consider good in the market is now raised just like when you run a mile the standard for like oh that's a good mile time was down here 
when you know the four minute mile still wasn't you know was wasn't broken now that it has it's like okay the standard for actually what's good is is actually way up here and so to you know so to relate that back to the markets it's like okay we always think like 15 times earnings like whatever the market trades at 15 times earnings 16 times earnings like that's normal but what if it's not like what if now instead of 15 it's like that four minute mile time now it's 18 20 25 and then that's just what's going to be normal across the board totally and i mean there's also a piece of this which is I'm surprised I don't see like peg used more often than PE at this point. Cause like, I know, the, I fact know. <laughs> that, the fact that Amazon is as big as it is and still grows as fast, it's like, it's unprecedented. Yeah. And so like, you know, you have to take growth into the equation. You can't just be like, you know, it is expensive at 20, but it's doubling every year. You know, like th- there has to be some <laughs> adjustment there and there is a ratio that adjusts for that. So I'm surprised yep. that that isn't, and I don't use it in any of my writing myself either. So I'm guilty here too, but yeah. that feels like, you know, it probably equalizes things or normalizes things a little bit more, mm-hmm. but like it is just massive companies that have gotten bigger than any companies have ever gotten and are still growing really, really fast. And the fact that technology allows people to access global markets and, and, and like there, there are things that would suggest that these companies should be the biggest companies in the history of the world yeah. and have ridiculous margin profiles and all of those things. And so like some things, should shift yeah and i feel like i might get this wrong but i wonder if peter lynch was the one who kind of coined the peg ratio but if not i mean i could be totally wrong you know what's sad and this is kind of an investing crime on my end i haven't read any peter lynch books which is kind of crazy um but i did start using peg when i dove into peru saxena's content on twitter i don't know why he gets roasted the way he does and dunked on but he provided a lot of value and I started using the peg not as a screener per se, but as like, Oh, okay. Like this company's trading at 0.7 peg and this company's trading at two times peg. But yet the one I thought that was trading at two times peg, I thought that was cheap. Yep, exactly. And I mean, like there's, there's this great Kathy Wood of Ark invest was on invest like the best. And she was like on a long enough time horizon, I become a value investor. And so I, yeah. I think it's it's that idea of like things compound over time and like you'd be shocked at, if you look out 10 years yeah. at like the multiples that you're getting these companies at. Yeah. And so there's certainly something something to that. Yeah, and it's actually funny you mentioned that because I had Brett Winton on last week. He's the head of research over at ARK Invest and he works, he works with Kathy and he referred to himself and what they do is deep value investing in the technology space. And I'm like, that's exactly what you do. Because if you go out five, 10 years and you create this case based on reasonable assumptions that Tesla's worth, you know, X multiple more than what you're paying for now, like that literally is the definition of value investing. A hundred percent. And so I think like that, that is where I get, you know, really excited and where I don't think that we're headed for a crash. It's like, can, yeah. can growth outpace the, can the growth in the actual underlying company outpace the growth in the stock price for a long enough period of time? And so like, you know, if a company is growing 55% a year and the stock price increases 50% a year, that's not crazy. Yeah. So it's that, that's like the fundamental thing that will be interesting to watch. Yeah. I want to pivot now to the future of not boring and, you know, just kind of get your inside baseball and what it's like starting this thing and, 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 and running it now. So walk us through the initial growth. So when did you start? What's the growth been like? How many subs are you sitting at now? And, you know, where do you see, and this, you know, might be a loaded question. So feel free to just kind of dismiss it, but where do you see not boring in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. Um, so the first part is definitely going to be easier. Uh, so 
like I said, when I took the writing course in April of 2019, started the newsletter, I think I'd sent out a tweet. I had like 300 followers at that point. Sent out a tweet. Are you and was serious? Like, yeah. Sent out <laughs> How a, many followers do you have now? It's like what? Thousands, 16, right? 16 something. Damn. Um, but at that point, like, I was like, guys, like, please, I need as an assignment to get some subscribers on this newsletter. I need to get it to 20. Please like, help. please don't make me like ask people one-on-one. -on -one. Like, I'm much crying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm much more comfortable just like sending it out there and hoping that somebody does something nice and signs up. So I got 25 subscribers, I think, for the first newsletter. Okay. Over the course of that first year, I was writing just like links and maybe an occasional essay. And it grew from 25 to 500. And I think I need to go back and reread the post every January 1st. I like lock myself in a room and reflect on the year and plan the next one. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure that I said, you know, my goal for this year is to get to 1000 subscribers on the newsletter by the end of 2020. Yeah. Uh, obviously like a lot of things have changed. It's the full-time thing now. Well, um, I think you passed that goal. I did. I passed that goal. <laughs> um, but I, but still by April of this year, I was at like 500. I decided to switch the name to not boring. It used to be called per my last email and like kind of just like, guys, I'm doing, I'm spending a lot of time writing this thing now. Like, could you help me share it? Cause it's kind of sad that I spend this many hours and it goes out to 500 people. Um, and so like got a little bit of bump there, grew a little bit more steadily, started writing a full essay every week. And I think that consistency is an important thing. And just like the uniqueness of sending something so long every week Because the mm -hmm. number one advice that I got was like, Hey, please shorten your writing. Cause it's really, really long. Interesting. And I'm glad that I didn't because I, like everybody writes, you know, a thousand to three thousand words call it and so just by being super long you attract people who want to read yeah. like it just makes them feel smarter maybe that they're reading a longer denser thing um so in june uh, i was working with a buddy of mine on it for a little while he was like what if we just like launched a landing page and launched on product hunt and so we put up a landing page launched on product hunt went from like 1200 subscribers to like 3500 subscribers over the course of two days because we got to number yeah. two on product hunt so that was really really helpful and from there it's been kind of linear since or like maybe even like a little bit curved up since then so since june grew from 3000 to i think we're at about 23,000 something like it was like 23,300 as of this morning when I sent it out. So it's been this like wild growth. I had That's a kid nuts. a couple of months ago. Yeah. Congrats. Like, thank you. And that week and like the following week, you know, I'd been like pretty steadily clipping like 800 to a thousand new subscribers a week for a few weeks leading up to that. And then I missed a week and then it was like 300 that week and 500 the next week. I was like, God right, forbid well, you have a kid, Packy. I mean, uh, I know, I know, <laughs> but like nobody cares, right? Like they're like, oh, this thing was, you know, that had momentum and now it does not have momentum. Um, <laughs> and so for a few weeks, I was sitting in like growing kind of 500 a week. And over the past couple of weeks, again, I've gotten back up to that like Slack, Slack getting acquired really, really helped mm. kind of raise I can the, imagine. The, the profile of the newsletter. And again, one that like, I got right and maybe Salesforce saw things the same way as I did, but my bull case on Slack was not, I think Salesforce is going to acquire this company, so buy it now, but right. it made me look smart because I had said good things about Slack. Yep. And so that happened. And then, you know, a couple of people tweeted last week's essay out and sent this week grew by like 1300. So it's picking up again, but like each week it feels like, oh man, like this is going to be the week that it all kind of slows down. And I guess like 23,000 is good and I can, you know, build a nice business on that, but yeah. like the growth is dead and then it'll pick back up. So it, it is this like, it looks like if I zoom out, like it's just this straight line up, but like every single week is kind of this roller coaster on the way up. Yeah. So from 3000 to 10,000, what did you do to 
grow that if anything or did you did you just kind of pump twitter and kind of rely on word of mouth to share and kind of let it bleed naturally yeah so there was i mean the one thing outside of twitter that i did was set up a referral program so people could share it and the referral program was good it's kind of trickled now because i haven't put the emphasis on it i had too much before i write my essays anyway to like keep adding new things that you need to do before you read um so that helped a little bit for sure but mostly it was getting more active on Twitter, tweeting everything that I wrote, and then really just like every single week showing up with something that is like new and interesting and shareable. Mm-hmm. That has, it's like, it's been 90% organic on between three and 10, between 10 and 23. It's really just been, you know, the kindness of strangers sharing things. I also posted on uh Seeking Alpha, you know, I've, I've been cross-posting for a few months, and so that kind of helps, but it's a small link at the yeah. top. Um, so, like little things like that that just kind of make not boring feel like it's in more, like like it's bigger than it is, kind of. So people are like right, I right. better sign up for this thing because, like, yeah, I think I saw that on Twitter, and then I saw it on Seeking Alpha, and so like I must be missing something if I'm not reading this thing, where it's really mm-hmm. just like kind of the Wizard of Oz man behind <laughs> type stuff going on. But for the most part, it's just been lucky that people have have shared. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, one of the things, one of the things that we're working on at Macrops is, you know, figuring out how to, how to kind of flip that growth switch and really accelerate. And we're looking at these referral program type things. Cause I know it worked so well for morning brew and from people we've talked to, it's just, it's just a good way to do it. Totally. I mean, morning brews is the, is the canonical example. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously the outlier, but it takes a lot of work there, right? Like they, they do a lot of, they launch the joggers and they like give away prizes and they keep it fresh and they have people dedicated to it. So like a referral program is something that it's like a no brainer to at least turn on. But if yeah. you want morning brew style success, like it's probably somebody's full-time job to make sure that, oh, yeah. that thing runs. Yeah. Their, their Twitter games also ridiculous. So good. I want to talk now about the morning or the not, I almost said morning brew. Look at that. It's in my mind. I, the not boring syndicate, which I think is a really interesting kind of idea and platform where you're basically taking what you're writing and what you're learning in real time and then leveraging that knowledge into actionable investment ideas, at least in totally. the private private markets here with the with the syndicate. So what has that experience been like? Have you, you know, kind of always wanted to start a syndicate? And what have you learned since starting this this syndicate? Yeah. So definitely have not always wanted to start a syndicate. Have always loved kind of, you know, public market investing, have always loved startups, have always wanted to get into to kind of angel investing. And so I wrote my first check uh, into a company called Apt. And it's a founder that I'd known for a while um, and really, really smart guy and like loved what he was building and know the struggle that he was coming from where he was, you know, he's building a software product for real estate. And so it's really hard to explain why you're not just building a real estate product and why this is like a venture scale type business and what the business model is and how it's different than a traditional developer. And so we were talking and he was like, Dude, I would love a not boring style write up on what we're doing because it'd be just a great thing to be able to like hand to somebody and say like this is yep. what we're doing. Yep. So I did that and and sent the the demand for the investment to a buddy of mine, Jonathan Wasserstrom, sent it to his syndicate, and that deal filled up. And then the founder came back and he was like, "Dude, you should just do your own syndicate here. Like this was really useful for us." Uh, and so I did. And so I started out, a buddy of mine from uh, from Breather. My sister's company, Ose, we actually invested in. It was the most oversubscribed deal yet, which is, it blows awesome. my mind because that, 
was one that I was super nervous about a Ghanaian yep. company, my sister's company. Yep. Um, but I think I built this like really good relationship with the readers where I've been like fairly nakedly commercial about the whole thing this whole time where it's never been like, I'm doing this for the art. Like, like, you know, <laughs> like at some point I want to pay my rent with this thing. You're like, I'm to, doing like, this for venture like returns. Let's be honest yeah, here. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I've done that, did a couple more companies, Sway Pay, just did one on Skill Magic. Now I'm doing one on a company called Outfit, which is like DIY uh, renovations in a box. So somewhere between hiring a contractor um, and, and just going full DIY, really cool company. Um, but it's been really fun. Like I, I, yeah. I love taking into companies and writing them up anyway. And so then to add the investing piece on the back end, like if you think it's a hit, uh, like a rush to get a subscriber it's a real rush to get somebody to say like cool i commit five thousand dollars to this round based on this thing that you wrote oh, yeah. and the, the idea of the company it's like a total that that part's really cool i mean who knows if we're any good at it who knows like if people are going to generate returns like these things take so long to play out it's oh i know, you know obviously like, that's the, the beauty of it of, right you make decisions in the moment and you're only going to know five ten years out totally and so it has to be this like piece of your budget that you're comfortable losing and all of that, but it's been really, really fun. And I want to keep kind of expanding that and figuring out what other strings to pull it. Like there's so much cliche, like starting a rolling fund is a very cliche thing to do or starting a micro fund is a very cliche thing to do. But like, as I'm talking to founders and they're like, cool, this is a pretty hot round. Like, you know, you think you can get this closed by next week? Like no chance, right? I have to write yep. up the memo. I have to set it out. I have to get all these people to commit. I have to do X, but like you're looking at six weeks probably. And they're like, all right, cool. We'll catch you on the next round. Yeah. So like, there's like other kind of ways that I can raise a little bit of money to be able to invest in those types mm -hmm. of rounds. So that's been one learning. But otherwise, I mean, I think the learning is there's, there's value in helping people kind of tell their stories and reach a broader audience. And I think we'll probably see more, uh, more people with some sort of kind of media property or audience doing these types of things. Cause mm -hmm. if you compare the not boring syndicate to a regular angel check from someone who like may introduce you to a potential client or something versus sending out a blast to 23,000 people and the companies that we've written about have hired employees and found like dozens of customers and gotten other investors. My sister got yeah. more money outside of the syndicate from the from the the newsletter than she did from the syndicate itself. And so it has all these wow. like kind of add-on benefits. Flywheel effects basically. A hundred percent. And so I think like that that and then I can like continue to tell the story as I do cool things and like as I'm writing and they fit in an essay, I can just kind of like give them another mention. And so like there's all these things where like I'm investing in companies because I'm interested and I think they have an interesting story. And then because I think they're interesting, like they also fit in a bunch of other things that I'm interested in and writing about. And so it's a good way to kind of keep that relationship going and kind of keep them in the, in the public eye. I hope I don't see you on VCs congratulating themselves anytime soon. <laughs> we, <laughs> that we, account I'm, makes me laugh I'm, so much. <laughs> I think I'm followed by that account. So I'm always nervous, but we've, we've only had a cordial relationship so far. <laughs> But to be fair, I haven't had anything good happen on the angel investing side yeah. yet. So I'm sure I'll be bragging once my sister's company goes public or something, then I'll get yeah. clapped at. You're like, I was reached out by Oza. They yeah, exactly. had burned millions. They were dead. <laughs> One last ditch effort. <laughs> no comment. No comment. Uh, do you think the angel investing, the VC investing has made you a better public investor? Um, I don't think so actually. Um, and I, I think like they're just very, very, very particularly cause I'm doing super early stage stuff. Yeah. Um, that this is really like, it really is about 
you know, the team and, you know, either it's an existing market and so there is a big market or they have to make a new market and you think that, you know, they're right on the trends and there actually is a new market to be made there. And so like a little bit where like any, anytime I'm getting a rep of analyzing a company and figuring out how it fits into things, like is helping me become a better investor, I think. Yeah. But I actually think it goes more the other way that because I've gotten more into public markets investing recently, it makes mm. me a slightly better early stage investor. I haven't seen it go the other way quite as much yet. Interesting. No, that's, that's actually, that kind of went against my early hypothesis, but I mean, there's definitely some, definitely some truth there. So I should, so I should check that notion that I have. Let's go to the closing questions right now. I know we just kind of reached the hour and, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. You're a new dad. So I can't imagine what that time management skill looks like, <laughs> but uh, there's no time management skill. It's just brute, brute force survival. So yeah. besides Stripe, which I know you love, is there any company that you wish you could own a majority stake in that is not publicly traded right now? Oh. I mean, Stripe is Stripe is that one. Another company, and I've written about this company before, but that I want to give a shout out to and, and that I love and uh, actually just made a personal angel investment in, but I would love to own like way more of the company is this company called Main Street. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but no, what they do is, yeah, they take their early stage. They essentially, you plug in your payroll and then they go out and they find all of the tax credits that the federal government or the local government or whoever else owes you. And then they just give you that. And then they take a small cut from that. And so it's, wow. they're finding free money that just exists out there from the government and they give it to you. And so like, what? you know, the guy, Nick Abazid, who's <laughs> over there running marketing for them was one of their early investors and was like, you know what? I have to just go work for this company. Like this is the easiest sale and the easiest marketing job I've ever, I've ever had in my life. Cause you just tell people I'm going to give you free money and then you back it up and you just give them free money. And so like, like that PPP one's really just cool. on repeat. Totally. But then like there are, also, there also are kind of, you know, defensible things there where like they're building up this database and like building kind of AI around always evaluating whether there's a new credit that's come out or your company has changed or whatever. So there's no reason once you've signed up for main street to ever leave. Cause like the only thing that's going to yeah. happen when you stay signed up is that they're just going to keep finding you more free money as they onboard new credits. And as the government offers new credits and as you add more employees. And so like their churn, you know, I haven't seen any numbers and it's too young to know. Yeah. I would imagine that their net dollar retention is going to look like better than Slack or Twilio or anybody's. They're going to be at like 150% net dollar retention. I mean, that. yeah. Like why, why would you ever switch? It's just free money. And it looks like it integrates with all the payroll systems like Gusbo, QuickBooks, ADP. Exactly. Wow. So that it's, one is like, it feels too good to be true, but yeah. like I've seen it because I, I, you know, had there were a, a CPA deal that I did. And so I've seen how many people have saved money. And from sending one email, people, not boring readers have gotten $1.1 million back from the government. Like that's Damn. absolutely insane. So that one I love. It says there's $50,000 waiting with my name on it. So awesome. <laughs> and like, I literally have an air table of each one of the people who've saved money. Yeah, like obviously anonymized, but like yeah. that is that is exactly what it looks like. And then some of them are like, wow. somebody had a two hundred fifty thousand dollar check written. Like it's just insane. Damn. Like for ten minutes worth of work. So that one, that one is amazing. All right. Well, this one's going straight to my bookmark tab. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> That's fantastic. And obviously, use mainstreet.us/slash/notboring if you do sign up. So oh, well, actually, I didn't know. Yeah, thank you for that plug. All right, sweet, <laughs> awesome. We'll do. So okay, so that's a 
amazing company. I'm actually glad I asked that question. Um, what current ideas are you thinking about writing? What stuff would you want to write about over the next month or so, or do you even know? I have no idea. I mean, I think there's probably on, you know, there's probably something about Facebook. I've avoided writing about them because I think the products are so disgusting, but like they've built, they've like remained relatively flat. And I say relatively, they're up like 30%, but relatively flat this year. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, when like the traditional kind of brick and mortar channel that was becoming hot again is just like a non-starter right now. And so I think their holiday spend is going to be outlandish. So there might be a piece on that. Um, yeah, I think APIs was an interesting one to explore, but also now makes me kind of want to explore DeFi a little bit more. And like, yeah, I wrote a piece on this company called Fairmint with somebody called, uh, somebody named Saria Zoot. Um, and like they're, they let companies essentially give equity or, or raise equity at any moment. And they give the people who own that equity liquidity all built on wow. top of uh, blockchain, but not like, it's not a crypto looking product. And so I think like yeah. what you can do when money is just like a lot more liquid is really, yep. really fascinating. Huh. I think more and more, you know, companies that deal with money in some way, FinTech like sounds boring to say, but just like everything that's going to be happening in, in money and investing I think is really interesting. Metaverse is going to be continuously and endlessly fascinating. I just finally uh, read Ready Player One, and so now I'm even more excited. Um, Have you seen the movie? Saw the movie first before reading the book. Yeah. I like the book a lot more. As I think you're supposed to say that on pretty much anything. <laughs> I'm reading Ready Player Two now, which just came out, and that's essentially what okay. happens if you combine Ready Player One with Neuralink. So it's like good or bad. What are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, so far, I'm 15% of the way in. Yeah. It seems like it's pretty addictive if you combine the Oasis with Neuralink. Awesome. Yeah. No, Neuro, uh, what was it? Ready Player One. That was a second date movie, actually. There you go. <laughs> For my current girlfriend. Dude, we have so. a third. Uh, so it worked. Yeah. So it worked. Ready Player One worked. The soundtrack worked. The story worked. And here we are. There you go. <laughs> so if you could invest in one country, oh, wait, actually, before I even get to that question, one of the things I wanted to ping you on is look up, if you haven't already, Razorpay. It's an Indian payment company. I mean, I'm sure you already have, but they are amazing, and I wish they would go public. <laughs> so I know. Well, not only do you wish they would go public, but you wish that they would go public and, and India changes its regulations about where they can go public and who can own the stock. So it is a real pain in the ass to try to own Indian an Indian company at this point. Um, yeah. But I think that should change over the next year, particularly because Geo Platforms wants to go public. The Ambani's have a good relationship with the government. And so I think they're kind of pushing through changes. So if you're an yeah. American investor, invest in, excited about India, that's actually going to be my answer. I think, you know, it's, it's a non, yep. you know, I wish I had something that was a little bit smaller, but it really like its curves and demographics and everything oh, yeah. look like China eight to 10 years behind, which means like, you know, 10 X opportunity from where it is right now in, in the tech sector at the very mm -hmm. least. So India is super exciting to me and my, my wife's family is Indian. So I get like the inside scoop and, and yeah, all of that, a inside but baseball. a little inside baseball, but I think that's going to be a fascinating story, fascinating story. And then obviously I have to give the plug to Ghana, West Africa. Yeah. I mean, like, there's just so many, like most of the world is not mostly online and e-commerce penetrated. And so just like, just rest of world generally, I think is going to be pretty fascinating to watch. Yeah, I actually just 
uh, what was it, last week or two weeks ago, I saw a, kind of a bear pitch for the future of India, which I thought was really interesting because we're super bullish on India at Makarovs going forward. And I saw this kind of contra piece written by a very, you know, esteemed, it wasn't just some, you know, random in his, in his, in his basement kind of going to town, but it hey. was a well thought out piece. So <laughs> as I'm talking to a random in the basement, exactly <laughs> with another well, so random in the basement, but <laughs> what, what was in two seconds, what was the bear case on India? Okay. Let me pull it up. Cause it was a couple weeks ago, but it was, it was a good medium post. I'll, I'll send you the link. Um, Let's see if I can go that far back. Uh, let's see, India. And no worries if not, but I'd love to. I'd love to read it. Like, oh yeah. There are certainly. Yeah. I mean, any. And I. I always fall victim to the being too optimistic about everything trap. But mm-hmm. like anybody who says anything's all rosy in any country, including China, including you know anywhere. Uh, including the U.S. is is crazy uh, and probably blind. So I'm sure there's a fairly decent bear case to yeah. be made. But I'm interested yeah. to see so, what this specific yeah, so, one is. Yes, basically the it's titled it's uh, by Andy. I'm gonna butcher this last name, Mukherjee, um, and it's on Bloomberg.com. It's why I'm losing hope in India, and uh, one of the one of the main paragraphs. You know, he says kind of regarding the COVID pandemic. Um, he says, so it breaks my heart to have to suggest that to today's rising generation that this crisis is different than others. We, meaning India, have weathered that the walls are closing in again and the opportunity set for India is shrinking perhaps for a very long time. The national dream of emulating China's rapid growth is receding by some economic yardsticks. We can't even keep up with Bangladesh. So I think it's one of these things as like a COVID inflection, like a downward inflection on. So I don't know if it's the same article, but I saw somebody quote tweeting something saying something similar where they compared like literally the highest growth point in the past decade and then a COVID kind of deceleration and compared the two and said like, look, India, we're not doing so well. So hopefully it's a COVID, a COVID blip. But I yeah. mean, I think in any country, if you said that, you know exactly what the impact of COVID is going to yeah. be, <laughs> you'd be crazy. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to send it to you. Cause I've, it's, it's a, it's, it's definitely a good read. Um, That'd be awesome. All right. Last, last couple questions here. What have you improved on the most over this last year? I think it probably goes back to the question that you asked before about just like the nervousness about writing publicly and like kind of that shame that I feel like, I don't know. I think I've, I've been able to just figure out a way to have just a ton of fun with this um, and to be comfortable with, the fact that I'm a free newsletter writer now, right? Like, you know, I went to a good school, worked in finance, was an executive startup, like really cared about being on that track. Status and now I'm symbol like, kind of thing. Yeah. And then yeah. this is obviously like its own type of status symbol as well, but just being mm-hmm. like, I'm going to do this totally weird thing. I've gotten very comfortable with that. And also I'm lucky that my wife is down with it. My family is supportive of all of that. But I think just like being happy with what's happening in the moment. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. So last question that I ask every guest. Um, and it's, it's so funny. This is this, this is the one question where I'll like send the outline because I always send the outline to people, you know, like you got it yesterday. And everybody will say, you know what, I looked at the outline, and I just totally didn't think of the answer to this last question. So it's always interesting to see what people think. But if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Yeah, this is, this is a very good one. I'm going to go just super cliche here. I would love to have dinner with Barack Obama. Okay. That's never been so fun. Yeah. He, he, he would be so fun to just have a beer with and play 18 holes of golf. Totally. 
like that that's or yeah shoot some hoops like that yeah. i didn't that, like there's just i mean i think it helps that you know the the person who came after him is just a, a such a stark contrast but he just comes off so cool and like he'd be such a fun guy to hang out with plus the fact that he has you know eight years of state secrets and hopefully you get a couple of beers and i'm get him to get him to spill but yeah. i don't know i think that'd be fun I'd be like so about those aliens <laughs> I know. I, th- I think I'm going to get kicked out of, you know, fintech and finance now for leaning left on that answer. But no, but, but it's so funny, right? Because it's because it's one of those answers that kind of transcends politics where it's just like he just regardless of what you agreed with or disagreed with on his politics, he just seemed like one of those people that you could relate to and that you could literally play 18 holes of golf with and be like, yeah, I was just hanging out with a friend. And it would just blow your mind with how smart they are. So it's like that combination of those two things that I mm-hmm. think would, that is why I'd want to hang out with them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Packy, this conversation was just so fun. Uh, obviously, you know, there's ways for people to reach you. You're not boring newsletter. Sign up for that. Uh, where else can people find you? What's your, what's your tag on Twitter? And we'll, you know, yeah, kind of run so that. not boring.substack.com is the newsletter. I need to get my customer domain uh, on that and at Packy M P A C K Y M on Twitter. Awesome. Packy, thanks so much. We're going to do this again sometime soon. I know it. Definitely. <laughs> we have a lot more to talk about. This was a blast.